Today's reading is from Luke 11, which is page 869 in your Blue Pew Bible. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your, your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Thank you, Andrew. And uh, it's my privilege to open the word with you this morning. These next two weeks, um, I'll be speaking, and as we were talking, Pastor Greg and I were talking, we wanted to spend some time just kind of on some more fundamental basics of the Christian life. And so my task these two weeks is to spend some time on prayer, and I believe there'll be some time in March where we spend some time on reading the Bible and knowing how to read the Bible. My intention in doing this is manyfold. Any of you who are involved in any discipline know that the fundamentals are so crucial to being able to, to be successful. If you learn a sport, you'll find that good coaches spend a lot of time repping the fundamentals. If you're engaged in anything at work, you'll find that it's actually the basic fundamentals that are often the, the, the hang-up spots when you're actually moving together as a team. Are we paying attention to communication and the, the communication flow within our team? These are the kinds of things that are crucial, certainly in life and in business and, and uh, just our regular activities. And the same is true of the Christian walk. Also, I think often it's these fundamentals that are usually ignored. They're the kinds of things that people just kind of assume you know. And uh, what we want to do is make sure that we're going over these in a way that's really helpful to all of us. Now, recognizing that you have a need, that you need to grow, is is a crucial step to all this, isn't it? I don't know about your experience learning to drive, but I learned to drive in Indiana. And I'm just going to say that maybe they should have done a little bit better job in requiring some things. I think they've since changed it up. But at the time, I was some kid in the country who mostly drove a tractor to mow our lawn, and that was about my, my driving experience. I figured, how hard can this be? My dad would try to get me to practice a little bit. I think I had to do like 10 hours, maybe max, of driving around with people. Again, probably not something I uh, should have been uh, able to get on the road with, but I have not yet wrecked. So, well, there goes that. I'll probably wreck this week. But I remember my dad kept telling me, you know, one thing you need to practice is you need to practice parallel parking. I mean, I'm in the country. I'm not driving city, city streets. I'm not having a parallel park. And I'm like, I know, I know, I need to. He even would set out cones, and I was like, I know, I need to get around to that. 
I think I did it one time before my test. I show up at the building. It was downtown, kind of the Indianapolis area. And the guy gets in the car with me. We pull out of the parking lot and go straight to the right. These streets are all 20 miles an hour, all one way. And on both sides are cars parked with perfect parallel parking spots the entire way. We did one complete block around the building. Every single moment, he could have asked me to stop and parallel park. And at that moment, I realized, you know, I probably should have paid attention to my dad. We pull around the first stop sign. We turn. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's 20 miles an hour. We go, and I'm just like, don't ask me, don't ask me. We stop at the second. Go, don't ask me, don't ask me. We pull back in the parking lot, and he says, all right, you're good. You get your license. And like I said, they should have done a little bit more. I think it was just not a great day for the guy. But in that moment, I realized, I need, I need to practice this. And what I did is I went home and I practiced parallel parking because I thought I, I never want to be in this scenario again where I'm going to need it and not know how to do it. But I have my license and I have since parallel parked successfully at least twice. All right. <laughs> these kind of moments teach you your need for these fundamentals. What Jesus is doing in this passage is kind of going to the fundamentals of prayer. What I don't want is for you to be in a situation spiritually where you say, you know what, I don't really know that I know how to pray, but I know I need to. And in that moment, who do you ask? Prayer is such a fundamental to the Christian walk that you may feel embarrassed to ask. What am I supposed to say? I don't know how to talk to God, and, but yet you feel the need to actually grow in this area. Maybe it's that you came to faith later in life, and you know the idea of prayers from like movies and things like that, but you don't really know if you're doing it right, if, if there's something you're missing. Maybe for you, you have instincts how to pray. Maybe even you were taught to pray as a child, but you weren't really born into a Christian home, and you weren't really taught by Christian parents, and so all of your instincts are informed by other things, other religions or other experiences, and you're wondering, am I praying the way the Bible wants me to pray? Well, that's really what we want to do, is ask Jesus, how should we pray? What you're going to notice in this text is that that's the example that the disciples set for us. These are people who grew up praying themselves, and yet when they see Jesus pray, even with all of their background knowledge, they recognize something that I recognized in myself, driving around the streets. I need this. I need, to, I need to know how to pray like Jesus would want me to pray. So whether you've long been somebody who's been under the Bible's teaching, or whether you're fresh to it, can I encourage you to take on that same posture of a student? If you've ever been in a classroom setting, you'll know that there's two types of students. There are the students who feel like they need to be there, and there are the students who really want to be there. And there's a supercharged version of the student who really needs to be there and knows it. And that is somebody who's actually practicing that skill right now. Maybe you've been in a classroom before and you've had a businessman who's coming just to take an extra class. And he listens way differently than anyone else. Because he knows, I'm facing this at work right now. And his questions or her questions are, are pertinent to life because they know they need this. Would we come to Jesus like this today? What we're going to notice in Luke chapter 11 is something that only Luke points out to us. And that is that Jesus was praying, and that's what actually prompts this whole teaching place, teaching in the first place. What we'll find then is Jesus doesn't primarily focus on the content of our prayers, although he does mention that. He's primarily focused on our heart towards the Lord, our understanding of how God is when we come to him. And we can prove that really quickly. If you look with me at chapter 11, look at verse 2, 3, and 4. We could call this the content of our prayers. This is what prayer should sound like. This is a template for the prayers. Then starting in verse 5, he's still talking about prayer, but he's no longer talking about what we should be saying, rather, but our, our view of God when we come to him in prayer. Verse 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through verse 13 is all focused on our understanding of God's heart towards us. That should inform us already as we enter into this that the content of the prayers, while important, needs to be 
guarded or uh, set in the context of our actual understanding of who God is. Now, Luke in particular is somebody who's really good to listen to when it comes to prayer itself. Luke uniquely details Jesus' prayer life for us. I don't know if you know this, but all throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke is constantly turning the camera on Jesus, and every time he does, Jesus is praying. Jesus can be alone in a deserted place, and he's praying. Jesus can be in some important event in his life, and what is Jesus doing? But he's praying. Just to point this out, Luke alone tells us that in chapter 3, Jesus prayed during his baptism. Luke alone tells us in chapter 6 that Jesus prays all night before choosing the disciples. No other gospel writer tells us this. Luke alone in chapter 9 tells us that he prayed right before asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? Chapter 9, he also prayed during his transfiguration. Again, something only Luke tells us. Only Luke tells us that he prays right here, and that's what prompts the prayer questions from his disciples. Only Luke tells us that Jesus tells Peter, I prayed especially for your faith that Satan would not shake you. Only Luke records the two prayers that Jesus makes on the cross. Luke is constantly pushing Jesus' prayer life to the fore. So it's appropriate for us then to listen to Luke teach us as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Luke often mentions that Jesus is just alone praying, like in chapter 4, verse 42, where he's just out in the wilderness praying. That happens in chapter 3. It happens in chapter 6. Luke is constantly pushing Jesus' prayer life to the fore, and so... It makes sense that here in chapter 11, we see this pattern of prayer from Jesus. I'd like then to look at, first of all, this pattern of prayer, this actually, the content of the prayer itself. Jesus had actually just been commanding prayer. If you look back at chapter 10, he's about to send his disciples out, and he tells them that they themselves should be praying for this harvest. Jesus has been talking about prayer himself. What we find is in chapter 11, Jesus was now praying in a certain place, and when he finished, it seems his disciples are listening to him. You can almost sense that in the language, right? They're listening, he stops, then they ask the question. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, it's not likely that Jesus had never talked about prayer with his disciples. You might remember that there's a very similar passage in, in the Gospel of Matthew, which may be a separate setting or it may be the same one that Luke simply compresses in this, in this instance. But either way, they're saying, we, we recognize we need to learn more about prayer. We need to know more about this. How do you want us to pray? Now, it's actually the Pharisees themselves who first bring this up. In chapter 5, they're the ones who say to the disciples, hey, John taught his disciples to pray. What is Jesus teaching you? And they're actually starting to criticize Jesus in the way he interacts with them. But this instinct, this desire to say, I need to know how to pray more, is something that we need to adopt if we're going to get the lesson here. Oftentimes when we think about these fundamentals, they can primarily be used almost as clubs against us. Maybe this morning you think, you think okay, we've got two weeks of prayer. Great, I know I need to pray more. I know I'm going to feel really guilty today. That is not the intention Jesus wants you to come like. He wants you to come instead with this kind of attitude that the disciples have. Lord, I want to learn more how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Jewish tradition had long taught these kinds of closing benedictions as patterns of prayer, not as things that you would re repeat back word for word, but rather as kind of a, a setting which you could use to, to develop your own prayers. And that's essentially what they're asking Jesus for. Give us a template for the things we should be praying for, the emphases, the, the patterns we should be praying for. So Jesus says, pray like this. He says in verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say this. That whole idea of when you pray shows us this pattern, not a word-for-word -word prayer. And I just want to break this down into two basic points. The first would be to pray for God's agenda. 
Now notice both the order and the weight of these things that Jesus gives attention to. Pray for God's agenda. And then secondly, pray for your needs. And we'll look at these kind of one after the other. First of all, verse 2, he says, pray for God's agenda. He starts with this simple word, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. These are requests primarily, first of all, talking about God's agenda. This idea of calling God your Father seems normal to us. In fact, people will even falsely say things like this. We're all God's children. This is not the teaching of the Bible. No, the teaching of the Bible is that you have to be granted to be one of God's children. In fact, Jesus had just prayed something very similar to this. The end of chapter 10, Jesus had just said in verse 21 and verse 22, if you want to flip there back there with me, he prays publicly and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Telling us that it's only through a connection with the Son that you can actually know God like this. This intimate connection, then, is for believers only. Jesus then says, for believers, here's how you should be praying. Approach God personally. He is your Father, which is a privilege indeed something granted to you. And then he says, for your first request, simply this, hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use that word a lot, but the word itself means to set something apart, to make it special. I think I've told this story before, but I think it was maybe three summers ago, we took a trip back to Indiana. It's about a 24-hour drive, and we stopped at a hotel in the middle, and at that time, I think our kids were maybe five and three and one, something like that. Well, at that time, one of my daughters had a special cat, which at the time was named Kitty, in a sense changed names. Um, part of the story probably has something to do with that. In the hotel, we were trying to hurriedly get everything ready in the morning. We still had another 14 or 15 hours that day. Threw everything in the car, started driving away, and that's when we realized we left Kitty. I thought, oh, great. So Megan did what any of you would do. She opened her phone to Amazon Prime and said, I can ship one there by the time we arrive. And that's exactly what happened. Kitty was waiting for us when we got to Grandma and Grandpa's house. But somebody knew. Because to her, that cat wasn't just any cat. It didn't just have to be black and white. It had to be her cat. And she knew what it looked like. It was unique. It was special. It was one of a kind. That's the word here. That God should be one of a kind, special, unique, the only one like him. She knew, actually, by the way, right away, that it wasn't the real one. And since then, we've had trust issues. But that's okay. All right. <laughs> Jesus says here, hallowed be your name. May your name, may who you are as a person be set apart, be special, be unique. Ezekiel, the writer Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 23, says that this exact same phrase, that God, may you set your name apart. May you make it special. What he's doing, what Jesus is doing is encouraging us to ask God to take action so that he looks special to everyone around him. He's also then submitting himself to that exact same thing, right? He's saying, God, I will do that as well. Do you know that the way you approach God, the way you talk about God, the way you talk about life actually says something about the God you follow? Here's what I mean. If you, if you are somebody who's constantly financially worrying, you snap at your children when you find that they've spent money with that they shouldn't have, or you, you, you snap with your spouse when you decide that they spent money where you didn't think they should have, what you're actually saying is something about God. You're saying, God doesn't provide for us like he should. I have to do this or no one will. And you're someone who's constantly worrying about the way somebody has treated you and it's festered into some kind of angry bitterness towards them. What you're actually telling everyone, yourself included, is that God's not a good judge. 
He can't take care of this, so I will. So I have to. If you're someone who's obsessed with the politics of our day in such a way that has generated fear in your heart, you spend hours each night looking over cable news TV shows or looking up articles, and you're constantly worried and festering in your spirit about everything going on, what you're actually doing is telling everyone God's not in control. Now, all of those things that have a place, we have to be financially wise, obviously. We want to make sure that people treat us right and that if we're wrong, that we make those things right. Of course, we want to make sure that our, our world is following God, that we're able to raise our children in an environment that allows us to be free. But you can see how if those become your obsession, what you're actually doing is telling everyone God is not this way. God is not this way. God is not this way. When Jesus says here that he's asking God to set his name apart, he's also saying that we should submit ourselves to the, the God that we're talking to and act in such a way that accords with how God has revealed himself. Secondly, though, he says, may your kingdom come. We might say it like this, fulfill your kingdom promises. What he's saying is that you, the king, Jesus is saying, I'm the king and I'm here, but my full kingdom is not yet here. What would it look like for God to rule everywhere? That's what he's saying he wants God to do. God, act so that your kingdom would come. Now, this emphasis, this order, too, is important for us. How many of your prayers sound like this? Do you pray for things like this to God? This kind of school of prayer that the disciples are going through, then, is a school that we have to participate in here. To emphasize the things that Jesus wants us to emphasize, which is God's name being set apart. His purposes to happen. Secondly, though, I would encourage you to pray for your needs. And this is the one that's probably a little bit easier for us. Look at verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And even here, you'll notice that the emphases are often different than what we do, right? One of them has to do with his daily regular needs. The other two are more spiritual in nature, and this should inform the way we pray as well. This word daily needs is just the word for an everyday thing. And he mentions the word for bread, but it's just a generic word for bread, likely meaning just our regular things we need day in and day out. Telling us that what we don't pray for tells us as much about what we think about God as what we do pray for. If you never ask God for your daily needs, what are you saying but this? God, I have this. I just need you for the bigger stuff, right? So I think by Jesus going to the basic daily needs, every piece of bread you put in your mouth, you're saying, God, I need you for this. He's extending this to all of our lives, to go to God regularly with the needs that you have, big or small. Secondly, he says, God, would you forgive us our sin debt? Now, this is not the grounds for God's forgiveness. It's rather an extension of God's forgiveness. Luke himself has given this parable in chapter 7 that says, very, uh, says something very similar to this. Jesus asks Simon, the Pharisee, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Which one will love him more? And Simon answers correctly, well, of course, the one who was forgiven more. Because we know that when you're forgiven, you respond with that same level of forgiveness. This is what Jesus is saying here. That we recognize God has forgiven us, so we extend forgiveness to others. So what he's asking is God to continue forgiving us for all of our debts. For we recognize that that's exactly what God has done for us. And we extend that to others as well. And then he mentions to lead us not into temptation. Now Luke actually described Jesus going into the wilderness with the same exact terminology. The Spirit led Jesus into temptation in the wilderness. The point here is not that... God never allows us to be tested or tempted in any way, but to not be tempted above we're able. Like Moses would say, 
Don't, don't let us go if you don't go with us. Paul says something similar to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be attempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Jesus here is encouraging us to pray for our daily needs, both physical in nature, literally just the, the morsels we put into our mouth, and also spiritual in nature, both our forgiveness of others and God forgiving us, and then even our da- daily regular temptations to go to God with prayer. Now, in this, what God is doing is, what Jesus is doing is setting aside a template for the content of our prayer. But what I want you to notice next is that Jesus really zeroes in not on the content of our prayer. He's given us some emphases here. He's given us a general outline to talk about the things that matter to God, to ask for our daily physical needs, and to make sure we ask for spiritual needs. But really where Jesus puts his thumb on the disciples' heart is where we need it as well. What we ultimately don't need is a prayer list, a laundry list of the exact things we need to pray to God. What we really need is a heart attitude towards God that reflects reality. It's been said that average teachers prepare good lectures, that good teachers respond well to students' questions, but that great teachers anticipate the questions we would ask before we even ask them. And that's what Jesus is going to do in these next two sections. He's going to reveal God's heart in prayer. He's going to do it with two scenarios. And the first one tells us something about our suspicion of God, primarily around his motivation. Why does God answer prayers? And that's really the first question he's going to ask of the disciples and then answer in this scenario. Why does God respond to people who come to him? Why does God do this? And he does it by giving us an illustration that requires a little bit of understanding. First of all, it requires that we take the whole thing as one. If you were to look with me at verse 5, you'll notice that it's one big question from verse 5 to verse 6 all the way through the end of verse 7. That's really important for us because he's going to anticipate that we answer this either one of two ways, with a yes or with a no. All right? And you'll see that he's clearly indicating that it's going to be a yes. All right? So look at this at verse 5. He says, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. All right? He's saying, does anyone have somebody like that? All right? And I said clearly yes. What I meant is clearly no, because what he's saying is nobody's going to have a friend like that, right? Nobody's going to have a friend. You go to him like that, and he won't answer you. Now, some of the understanding here is understanding the culture that Jesus is speaking to. This is a culture of hospitality, where you are expected to extend for, uh, for, for others. And Jesus' example has this kind of obvious answer. Nobody has a friend like this. Everyone's friend would gladly help them in this scenario. But what Jesus wants to draw our attention to is the motivation of the person providing the help. Now, because we've got a friend and people visiting, it can be a little confusing here what's going on. So let me illustrate it like this. I'll, I'll change the scenario. Let's say that I have a friend who comes and says, hey, I'm driving through the area. We need somewhere to stay. And perhaps I don't have a spot for it. It's late at night, and I think, who could I call that would gladly immediately open their home? And maybe I say, you know what? Pastor Greg would do that. I call him and I wake him up because it's 9 o'clock and he's already asleep. We know how this works, right? I mean, so am I, so no no judgment. I call, I I wake him up and I say, hey, I've got this friend. I can't keep him, but I've got to find somewhere for him to stay. And I thought about everyone I knew, and I thought, you'll do it. Now, what is he going to do in that moment? He's going to say, okay, right? What is he going to say? No, I won't. Like, I'm putting all of my weight on our relationship. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. 
If you've got a friend who comes to you and says, hey, of everyone I knew I could trust you, what are you going to do? You're going to respond. But what he wants to focus in on is not whether or not the person responds, but why is it that that person is responding? It's because we might say it like this, they feel culturally obligated to respond. In other words, it's not that Pastor Greg woke up and said, you know what I really want to do is provide this guy a spot to stay tonight. He's saying, hey, if he trusts me, of course. That's the answer. So notice this now. He says, I want to draw your attention to the motive. He says, which of you has a friend? You go to that friend and you say, hey, I need your help. He goes to open the door and he helps you. He says, will he help you? Look at verse 8. He's going to give us this contrast. Now what he's going to do is command prayer through this kind of contrast. Why is it that the friend's going to help? We could ask that question. I tell you, though the friend inside the door will not get up and give you anything because he's your friend. It's not just because he's your friend. It's not like he's like, man, I've been waiting to do this. He's going to do this because of his impudence is the word we have here. He will rise him, rise and give him whatever he needs. His point is either this, that Chris entrusted Greg so much that he says, okay, I'll help you. Or rather that Greg listens to me, and as he listens to me, he says, okay, this guy won't leave me alone. I'm going to just go help him. Likely it's the first, but either way, what he's saying is it's actually just this cultural expectation, and he's recognizing I've got to do something for this. This is why the friend helps. You see that that's what Jesus is saying? That's why the friend is going to help. Now, what he's about to do is draw a contrast between why people help and why God's going to help. So look with me at verse 9. He says, when it comes to God, here's what God is going to do. I tell you... Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What he's trying to do is say this. When we help each other, especially in these kind of hard situations, we're often doing it because we feel like we have to. But God is actually the one telling you, hey, knock on my door. You see, that's what he's saying. He's saying, before you go look for anyone else, I want to be the one to help. I want to be the one you ask. I want to be the one to give you what you need. So if you were to put God in the same scenario, what Jesus is saying is he's not waiting for you to ask and wondering, okay, I guess I need to obligate myself to this. It's like he's put a banner outside his door and he said, hey, mine's, mine's the place you go to. I'm waiting for you. He's got his hand on the handle and the moment you knock, he's opening. He's drawing a contrast in the motivation of why the people answer. Now this gets at the very heart of why we often don't pray or why our prayers are shaped the way they are. We often don't view God in this kind of situation. We view God very dif- distinct and, and different from this. We view him like this. Well, I guess God will help me because he feels like he has to. Or maybe God would care about this, but it's something so small. Jesus instead puts his finger right on the reason that we often struggle to pray, and it's our view of God himself. What he wants us to know then is that God wants us to ask. God wants us to come to him. So he simply encourages us. He commands us, ask, seek. Knock. Knock on my door, God says. This gets to the heart of often what we need when it comes to encouraging us to to have more robust prayer lives. It's actually our view of God that changes our language, content of prayer, how often we pray, what our prayers sound like. So Jesus places his hands right on this. Why does God answer us? Because he's the one who prompted it in the first place. Jesus responds then to this kind of inherent question we might have. Does God care? Does God want me to come to him? With a resounding yes, giving us this kind of scenario to paint this picture for us. What do you think God thinks about you when you come to him in prayer? That's really what Jesus is asking. 
How does God view you when you come to him? What Jesus tells us is that God is longing for you to come to him in prayer. There's a deeper question, though, and that is simply this. Especially if you're somebody who's been praying and been praying long for something that's deep set in your heart and you haven't gotten the answer you want. This encouragement from Jesus can actually be kind of harmful. It can be hurtful to you. You say, I have prayed, and he hasn't answered me. I have knocked, and he hasn't opened. I have sought, and I haven't found. So Jesus knows our hearts, and he takes one extra step in this kind of teaching moment, and he asks and answers a second question. Why does God not answer us how we want? Maybe you say, you know, I understand these emphases. I, I get that I'm supposed to pray for God's glory. I get that I'm supposed to pray for physical and spiritual needs. I get that God wants me to come to him, but I have. And the reason I struggle to pray is because God doesn't answer me how I want. Jesus gives another example, and this one too has an obvious answer. Look with me at verse 10. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Then he says this, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead give of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? What's the obvious answer to this? Do you have any fathers that will do this? No. <laughs> now, what is this? Notice again in verse 11, the son asks for what? A fish. And he gives him not just like something else, right? Like a piece of meat. He gives him what? Scorpion, something, or a serpent, something harmful, right? Or he says, if you ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. He's not just saying that the father's giving an alternative gift. It's that the father's giving an evil gift, something harmful. And isn't that often our heart towards God when we ask for something and God responds by giving us something else? Is what we want to say is, God, you didn't just give me an alternative answer. You gave me a harmful answer. This gets to a deeper suspicion we have of God. So Jesus then again draws our attention to his motive. Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, he's saying this, you as fathers, you're evil and even you know not to give an evil gift to a son when he asks for it. Saying it positively, it would be like this. God will never, or saying it neg negatively, it would be like this. God would never give you an evil gift an evil response to your request. And then he argues here from lesser to greater. Verse 13, he thinks of the greatest gift God could possibly give, and without getting into a ton of detail in this scenario, in this day and age, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, they would say that the greatest thing you could receive is the blessing of the Holy Spirit, which would be a different experience that we might have today. Think about it like this. You might remember Saul lost the Holy Spirit, right, back in the Old Testament. This is the same day and age that they would be living in. The Holy Spirit rushed upon David in the exact times where he needed God's help like that. We find in the book of Exodus that God especially equipped people who built the temple with the Holy Spirit's aid. The Holy Spirit then would come upon people for special acts of service, and that's basically what Jesus is pointing to. That just like you would say, that's the greatest thing God could give me, God will give you even that if you ask him. But what God will not do is give you an evil gift. In other words, if you were to follow Jesus' line of thinking in this passage, what he's saying is, let me give you some emphases for prayer. And you say, yeah, but does God really want me to come? And he says, yes, he does. In fact, he's the one who's asking you right now. He's prompting you to pray. 
You're not coming to him unaware. He's waiting. His hand is on the door, ready to open it. And you say, yeah, but when I've asked, he doesn't give me what I want. Jesus says, yes, but he's always giving you something good. Now, if you especially have come to Jesus and asked him for things that are deep on your heart, that can still feel very hard to handle, can it? Maybe you've long prayed for God's help for some physical malady in your family. Maybe you've long desired to be married. No matter how much you talk to God about it, you feel totally alone. Maybe you've long desired for children. Or for a wayward child to return. I want you to know that Jesus is speaking softly to you today. But he is speaking certainly. Just because God doesn't give you the exact answer you want does not mean he's given you something evil. That God's heart towards you is good. I do want to say just a couple of words to those who might be grieving in these kinds of scenarios. What God is not saying is that you can't be sad or you can't grieve. Your sadness is not a problem for God. Grief itself is a long path that often is difficult to manage, difficult to expect what, to, what will happen next, how you'll respond. It's unpredictable. But don't hide in your anger towards God. And don't accuse God. Even like Jesus is clearly indicating here that we would say, God, you've given me something wrong and evil. Instead, talk with him about your anger. Listen to his response. Often when we ask these kind of deep-seated questions, our grief over them, our struggle through them is part of what keeps us close to them. To relieve that grief also often feels like we're losing the thing that we're grieving over or struggling through. My encouragement to you is what Jesus' encouragement here is, to instead step towards God, to let God be with you in the grief, and in so doing, that God would bring you and you would bring God close to that thing you want. Jesus here then in this teaching on prayer is primarily emphasizing our heart towards God and God's heart towards us. And it's actually that that's the crucial part for learning how to pray biblically, is to understand who God is. What I'd like to do then is just make a few applications as we kind of take this text and place it into our lives this week. A really nice thing about the way Jesus teaches this is what he's not necessarily saying is that you have to have a PhD in prayer to be able to learn how to pray. You don't have to have decades worth of Christian experience to learn how to pray. What you need is to know God. So maybe you are a week into your Christian, your Christian walk, or maybe you're several decades into your Christian walk. The emphasis is the same, to know the heart of God. Let me just call out a few applications here. First of all, what does your prayer life tell you? Malformed emphases reveal malformed views. All right, maybe that's too big of a word, but hopefully that makes sense. What I'm saying is if you've got a twisted emphasis, you never ever pray for God's glory, that tells you something about your view of God. If you never ever pray for your daily regular needs, that tells you something about your view of God. These emphases then tell us our perspective on who God is. And so you could ask it like this. If you want to know what you think of God, ask questions of your own prayer life. Right? That's what he's saying. Your view of God informs the kinds of things you pray for, what those prayers sound like. Secondly, hesitancy in prayer portrays hesitancy in God. Maybe you 
I've thought of God like the friend who doesn't really want to get up but feels like he has to. Jesus' story is to instead encourage you to come to him first and often and only. God says, come to me and I will answer you. Thirdly here, let me encourage you to guard your heart against accusing God when he answers in ways that you don't want. To assigning motives to God that are not right. I say that softly, but I say that confidently. God's answers to you, even if they're different than what you want, are never for your ill. It may be that that's a truth you have to grab onto with pure belief, without evidence right now. But take Jesus at his word. And as you experience the kind of grief or anger at God not answering the way you want, take that to God as well. Now, next week, what I'd like to do is take more of a practical approach to actually how prayer should be built out, all right? And what we're going to do is primarily look at how the Bible teaches us to pray. But let me just make a few opening observations before we get into the, the lesson next week to encourage you to develop a biblical pattern of prayer. I'd encourage you, first of all, just to choose a location and an unbroken time. We're all busy. We all have lots going on in our lives, but we can all find a few minutes each day that we can be consistent with. Probably it's around when you wake up or when you go to bed, one of those two. Or maybe it's around a mealtime where you can set aside just a couple of minutes. I'd encourage you to stick with that this week. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm recognizing today I'm not praying like I, I want to or like I need to. Can I encourage you just to pick a time and a location and make that a date with you and God? God, at this time, at this day, each day, I'm going to talk to you. Secondly, I'm going to encourage you to do what we're going to look at next week, which is to learn to pray the Bible. Maybe you say, I don't really know how to pray. I would encourage you to look through the Bible. You can even just Google what are some good prayers in the Bible. And then listen to the way God prays, read that through, and then and pray that back to God. Listen to the way that the Bible teaches you to pray. And finally, I'm, I'm going to encourage you something that might seem kind of odd, and that is this. Don't forget God in prayer. Don't forget God in prayer. I mean by that at least a couple of things. Number one, it's not simply a laundry list of whatever you need, right? You're talking to a person. And you can see how even as Jesus gives us this pattern of prayer, these are all personal interactions with God. And secondly, don't forget God in prayer in this sense, that your prayer tells you what you think of God. It tells you what you think of him. Don't forget that as you pray. Listen to yourself. Describe what you think of God as you pray. Let that inform your need to continue to grow in your knowledge of who God is. This teaching from Jesus is, is, anticipates a lot of the kinds of things we struggle with. And its emphasis isn't primarily on the content, but rather on our understanding of who God is towards us. And whether you're brand new to the Christian faith or have long walked with Jesus, I pray that you'll take Jesus' instructions carefully and take them on to your own heart and ask yourself those questions about what you really believe about God. I'd like to close just with a, a single song that many of you have heard before, but it tells us exactly the kind of heart that we should anticipate from God. It's called, Come My Soul With Every Care. Come my soul with every care, Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray. He will never turn away. This is the heart that Jesus has described for us, the heart of God he's described, that encourages us to do exactly what he's told us today, which is to pray. Next week, I'd like to take a practical approach to learning how to pray the Bible, and we'll do that um, in next Sunday morning sermon. All right, if you join me in prayer, we'll ask for God's help to do that. God, thank you so much for this lesson from Jesus. 
He not only gives us these kinds of emphases we need to hear, things that we often skip over in our own prayer lives, like asking for your will to be done or asking for your, your, uh, the things that matter to you of first importance. But he also gets at really the root of why we often fail to pray or why our prayers often fail to land or why they often feel so weak. And that is that our view of you is stunted in some way. So I pray that you would help us to be honest enough with ourselves to think about what we believe about you and how that's impacted the way we pray and what we pray and how it sounds and how often we pray to you. Pray that above all else this week that you would grow in us a really robust understanding of who you are. And with that understanding that we would be eager to come to you, eager to bring our request to you, and even that when you give us answers that we don't anticipate or don't want, that we would respond with faith. Faith that may falter, but faith that is settled in this, that you are good and you are working for our good. I pray that as we learn to pray these two weeks, that you would draw us into this relationship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.